Quest podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, licensed professional counselor supervisor. Today, I welcome to the show Dr. Amanda Hilberg, licensed clinical psychologist, who will be discussing her practice in one of her areas of specialty, exposure and response prevention for OCD. Welcome to the show, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me, Noah. I really appreciate it. And so you are a licensed clinical psychologist officially, officially as of today. Officially, officially. Yes, uh, I, am, I am recently minted. So this is a nice day to be on that I can officially say that. Yes. Awesome. Um, I'm really excited for you. Thank you. So what, what's your experience? What are your credentials? Tell us a little bit more about where you've been. Sure, absolutely. Um, So the degree that I have is a um, doctorate in clinical psychology, so a PsyD, and I went to graduate school at the PGSP Stanford uh, PsyD Consortium up in Palo Alto in Northern California. I did my clinical internship, which is what folks do um, there last year of graduate school at the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center in Houston. So I've been a a Texan for a little while now. And I just finished up my specialized um, training in anxiety and OCD at anxiety and OCD specialists uh, in Austin, Texas, and I'm sticking around Austin for a while. Nice. Mm -hmm. So um, do you have your own practice or are you practicing with them? I am practicing with Austin Anxiety and OCD Specialists. I'm an employee there. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Um, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? If not, why not? I do accept insurance. Um, I accept uh, many Blue Cross Blue Shield plans. And I always tell folks who are interested in treatment with us to call our admin staff to find out if their particular plan is covered. But we do cover a lot. Okay. Do you happen to know that phone number by chance? Um, I can certainly, do you want me to pull it up right now or I can share it with you later? We can do that or I can post it in the show notes. That would be awesome. Yeah, I can can definitely send that to you. Just feel free to remind me. Awesome. So phone number for admin 
it will be in the show notes. Um, so what about sliding scale? Are there any options for that? Yes, there are. And I know this differs clinician by clinician, but for me, if folks, um, if they don't have insurance or are choosing not to use insurance, I do have a sliding scale that's approximately $30, $35 below our uh, full, full rate. Cool. Um, do you have weekend or evening appointments? Unfortunately, no weekend appointments, but I do um, have appointments. They're filled right now, but I do generally offer appointments um, between like at 4.30, 5, 5.30, and sometimes even 6 p.m., just depending on need. Cool. Is being a therapist your first career? If not, what was? Well, I, I, don't, I don't know if you would consider scraping by in Los Angeles paying for a cheap studio apartment as a tutor a career. So if not that, then yes, <laughs> being a therapist <laughs> is my first career. What drew you to being a therapist? So um, I attended a performing, it's, it's, it's all going to come around. I'm going to start talking about summer camp and then we're going to get back to the question. I can't um, wait for this. <laughs> I hope, I hope it's everything, <laughs> everything. <you hope. laughs> um, but I attended for the majority of my childhood, a performing arts summer camp called Meadowlark in, in rural Maine. And I was a camper, a counselor in training, and eventually a counselor when I got older. And being in a performing arts specific camp, and not only performing arts, but visual arts, being around a lot of artists, a lot of creative minds. And I think you know, what can often come with that is being exposed to a lot of burgeoning mental illness as well. You know, we know mm -hmm. that there, there um, are some associations with creatives and, and um, mental health concerns. And so I found myself really drawn to being a support person for these folks, like sitting, sitting at the dock with a friend and being the first person they told about their bipolar disorder diagnosis. And them being really scared about taking medication and feeling stigmatized and being their infirmary buddy and saying, all right, this is cool. This is all right. Let's go take your meds twice a day. You're good. Um, being, being a person who is um, kind of hyper aware in some ways of, of some concerns like non-suicidal self-injury or hearing someone vomiting in the bathroom and asking about it what's, what's going on after dance class, after ballet class, I heard you throwing up in the bathroom. Are you okay? Do you have food poisoning? Finding out that that was not the case, that some purging behavior was emerging. Um, and in addition to those experiences, being a peer and then being a counselor, I also have lived experience with mental illness, um, specifically anxiety and depression. And through my own work, really wanted to understand the scientific mechanisms of mental illness and the most effective treatment and to extend the support that I've gotten to, to others in this career path. That's awesome. Thanks. So is that what drew you to getting trained in exposure and response prevention and working with OCD and anxiety? Yeah, I mean, that was a piece of it. I think both my lived experience and seeing others suffer. Um, I'm also just really interested in anxiety disorders and, and OCD and um, find the treatment really creative and challenging. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe at some point we can talk about some more about what 
ERP and anxiety treatment looks like, but I think there are a lot of misconceptions about it, that it's, you know, rigid or sterile, or we're forcing people to do things, or it's, it's very scripted and something that I really like about it is there's so much personalization and creativity and also being present for someone um, getting out of this shell of avoidance is powerful. Um, so that, I guess that in a nutshell is the reason that why I chose this particular um, path to specialize in. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. What you, TV do you enjoy watching? What music do you enjoy listening to? Just give us an idea. I have a ton of little hobbies. Like I'm not particularly good at anything, <laughs> aside from hopefully being a psychologist. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but I, I like to bounce around. I feel like there was a GRE word called a dilettante. And I read that word and I was like, I'm that. And I think it's someone who has like a bunch of little shallow interests. Um, I really like crocheting. Um, I like making beaded jewelry, all these little like remnants from summer camp, playing guitar and singing, learned when I was 14, have not gotten any better, but have at least retained. Um, I used to love to travel before we had a devastating global pandemic. Mm -hmm. We'll hopefully do that again. Um, <laughs> I also really like taking my dog and my partner and driving us to random neighborhoods in Austin and walking around and commenting on funky architecture. That's been a, a solace. Um, and, and spoiling my animals in general is, is another, um, <laughs> I'm an, I'm an avid animal spoiler, I would say as a hobby. One step closer to heaven. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. I got to feed them more, uh, more filet mignon and burgers. Yeah. <laughs> so talking, you know, there's, there's a lot, there's so much about OCD just alone. Um, that I, I don't know that we'd be able to discuss all the nuances of that in one podcast, you know. Um, but to give our listeners um, an idea, what are obsessions? Yes, I'm so happy we're talking about this because I think unless, you know, you've received OCD treatment who have done or have done a lot of research, some it's 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 not super well understood to just, you know, the average person out there. So yes, obsessions. So um, when I talk about obsessions, compulsions, a lot of these different concepts, I uh, gather a lot of this information from the International OCD Foundation or IOCDF. And I highly recommend uh, that as a, um, as a prime resource for people who are interested in learning about OCD and related disorders. It's sort of the, uh, the preeminent um, association for, for OCD internationally. So back to your question. I digressed a little bit. Um, uh, obsessions are unwanted, out of control, disturbing thoughts, images, or impulses that come up over and over again for people. And people do not want to be experiencing these things. So these are unwanted things that are just bombarding their brains. Um, and people often experience really intense emotional reactions. So discomfort, fear, disgust, emotions that we really, really want to avoid. Um, and I, I think it's important to distinguish what obsessions are versus just thinking about something a lot. Mm -hmm. So what characterizes obsessions diagnostically is that they're unwanted, they're intrusive, 
and they come up really frequently, like boom, boom, boom. Um, they trigger extreme anxiety and distress. And the biggest piece to, for a diagnosis of OCD is that it impairs someone's functioning. You know, it takes up so much space in your mind, these obsessions, that it gets in the way of you working, of you having relationships, of you being present in your life. So that would be my definition of obsessions. What are some common obsessions in OCD? Yes. Um, I love answering this because I think it normalizes this for a lot of people. There's so much shame in OCD. And I think people think, oh, OCD is about, you know, being concerned that there are germs. No, I mean, I mean, yes, but it expands far beyond that. I'll go over some of the heavy hitters. Would that be helpful? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, contamination obsessions. So being concerned about bodily fluids, dirt, environmental contaminants, chemicals, things like that, worried that um, those are going to cause us harm or make us feel dirty or unwell. Um, Another category is fear of losing control and that often intersects with harm. So fear of acting on impulses to harm yourself, harm others, have horrible, violent images come to one's mind that no one would ever want that are totally out of our control. Um, Being in a meeting and having a fear, a fear obsession of blurting out something inappropriate, fear of, you know, of, of a crime, doing a crime. Um, also harm obsessions, you know, being afraid that uh, you're responsible for something terrible happening or that you're not careful enough and you'll hurt someone. Um, perfectionism is another one. So being really concerned with evenness or exactness, remembering things, you know, like what if I forgot this thing when I left the house? Um, difficulty discarding things, which sort of go, goes into hoarding, which is um, um, a disorder that's associated with OCD, um, unwanted sexual thoughts. These are thoughts that when I tell people that this is a symptom of OCD, the relief that washes over them is, is incredible. Yeah. I mean, people with OCD can have really unwanted sexual images, you know, sometimes with their parents, sometimes with children, you know, these are things that no, that, that they don't, they don't want, you know, this is not something that is egocentric. It's very ego dystonic to them. Religious obsessions and um, some superstitious stuff are the main ones. I know that was a mouthful and that only hits upon, you know, a fraction of what people might experience. And then there isn't, isn't there one also about like sexual orientation? Yes. So there's sexual and orientation OCD and another, another subset has been trans OCD mm-hmm. that, you know, I've, I've seen a fair amount in my practice. That is something that is, you know, um, coming up more and more, you know, am I gay? Am I bi? Am I trans? You know, what is my identity? And in an obsessional way, not in a just, you know, not in a just questioning of identity way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> where, where does one draw the line in that? It's, it's really tough. I have to say, you know, I've, I work with folks who are exploring their gender and are exploring their sexuality and have OCD on top of that, that, that sort of attacks that in a way. And I think the, the difference there is, you know, 
is is your questioning or exploring your identity extremely distressing to you? Do you, do you, is it, is it obsessional in a way where if there's any uncertainty, you feel an immense amount of distress? Are you doing a lot of compulsions trying to figure out, you know, I need to know if I'm trans or not trans. I need to know if I'm um, queer or not queer. And, and the sort of the black and white thinking in that, I think distinguishes it and the functional impairment piece. It, and tell me if that makes sense. Cause it's so nuanced. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm thinking about it, about what you just said regarding um, the black and white. Yeah. I'm just trying to reflect back on my experience and think about how most people's, like when somebody's questioning, you know, what's common amongst those people. And for some people, I think especially with religious upbringings it becomes more black and white yeah um but I, I think it does tend to be more fluid among people that's interesting I'm gonna, I'm gonna store that in the back of my brain yes and happy to talk more about it and I mean think religiosity and upbringing and society and systemic and all of these things factor into just general distress about identity. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And that is so normal. Yeah. And that is so reasonable. And I, like, I think almost expected and, you know, I think black and white thinking in that regard is not necessarily indicative of OCD, but I think when there are a lot of other diagnostic factors happening there, then we can say, okay, there's an OCD component. Another thing that I'll tell people is, you can be struggling with something or something can be there, but then OCD comes and attacks it and magnifies it and makes you want certainty and takes control. Um, So, you know, there can be identity questions that OCD then makes a lot more rigid, a lot more black and white, a lot more distressing if, if that. Yeah, no, I, I can totally think of somebody that I've worked with who is trans, but has, intrusive thoughts about being trans yeah Um, so uh, I I see where you're coming from I see what you're saying yeah but I agree like even when I'm trying to explain it it's it's so sensitive and it's so Mm -hmm. nuanced and it's so personalized and it's this hard line too like I you know I I want people to embrace who they are and to celebrate that so much and to be like an active participant in exploring that with them and also trying to figure out like what pieces of that are are harmful to them and it's so sensitive so so sensitive well you know i think it goes back to like any diagnosis in the dsm-5 it has to impact functioning you know to like breach that that cusp yeah Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Happy to talk about that more at any point because it's something that is, um, is really interesting and really, um, and really, I mean, humans are complicated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Brains are complicated. Yeah. I am making a note. Sure. Okay. So, um, 
we're skipping around a little bit and then we'll, we'll come full circle later on. Um, so we know what obsessions are. What about compulsions? Compulsions are the part two to obsessions. So compulsions are a direct response to obsessions. So someone has an uncomfortable image, thought, um, urge in their mind and compulsions are used to sort of neutralize those, you know, avoid thinking about those, uh, make those feel better in our minds. Um, compulsions are usually done repeatedly as well. Um, and they serve to escape discomfort. Compulsions, I think traditionally we see as the, the you know, it portrayed in media as what is what we see. And what really can get in the way of people's lives, though I argue that obsessions can get in the way of people's lives just as much, but um, they can take up a lot of time, you know, and there are physical compulsions, there are mental compulsions, so ones that we can see, ones that we can't see. Um, so, you know, compulsions of feel, obsessions of feeling so contaminated and compulsions of showering for hours or washing your hands till they're raw or an obsession of my partner hates me, my partner is mad at me, I've done something wrong and then asking for reassurance so excessively that it impacts the relationship. Um, and most of the time compulsions are not things that people want to do. Like you don't generally want to be washing your hands until they're raw or, you know, praying a hundred times a day if you feel like you've committed a sin. So just like um, obsessions are things that people would really rather not do, but they feel compelled to do because of how much distress they have. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, can one have obsessions without compulsions or vice versa? I mean, it would be a goal to experience obsessions and not do compulsions. And I'll, I'll talk about sort of the, the treatment. So compulsions, you know, often we can't necessarily control obsessions. Compulsions often keep us stuck. So um, it is, you know, it's, it's, it would actually be a good thing to experience obsessions and not do compulsions and sort of um, sit with them. I would say that it, it would be difficult to do a compulsion without having an obsession because the compulsion is, is a response to the obsession. You know, there's some there's something that you want to get rid of that you don't like that the compulsion serves. So I think it would be difficult to have compulsions without obsessions, but I think it would be a great goal to experience obsessions and not do compulsions, if that makes sense. <laughs> there were a lot of a lot of words happening there. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Um... Can you explain the way in which obsessions interact with compulsions a little more um, and maybe give a, a few more examples of that? Sure, absolutely. Um, so the way that obsessions interact with compulsions is that you have some sort of obsession, an image, uh, a thought that comes into your head that keeps coming. It won't go away. You're getting really anxious, amped up, agitated, uncomfortable, you say, I need to do anything to make this go away. And so you do a compulsion, which is, you know, which can be thinking about something in a certain way. And let me, let's actually go back to um, the sexuality OCD piece, the trans mm -hmm. OCD piece. Um, so if someone has a thought of, you know, what if I'm trans? I really don't want to be trans. What if I'm trans? Um, or what if I'm gay? I really don't want to be gay. That's scary, you know, and it it is scary because systemic oppression and et cetera. So real, but mm -hmm. then OCD jumps on that. Um, 
a compulsion to sort of clarify, am I trans or not? Am I gay or not? Going online, taking quizzes, you know, which is, which is something that a lot of people exploring identity do, but in OCD, you'll see it to another degree, maybe spending hours, maybe, you know, searching every quiz on the internet, going on Twitter and trying to find people um, who look like you, who may or may not be trans, uh, doing a lot of excessive reading to try to compare yourself to other people to see if, um, to sort of confirm or disconfirm identity. Um, or, you know, if someone feels like in a, in a meeting, they said something, you know, offensive um, or untoward, they might spend several hours doing some mental compulsions of replaying that meeting in their head and trying to make themselves feel better. Like, okay, you know, I, I, I don't think I did anything wrong. Like I said it this way in this tone and sort of mentally replaying that over and over and over again. Um, so those are two examples that I hadn't used before to give a little bit more context to what this can look like, but it can look like a million different permutations of that as well. You know, it's interesting you were talking about the sexual orientation and gender, the compulsions there. Uh, you know, speaking from my experience, mm -hmm. um, a lot of people who are working through and exploring their gender do do that stuff. You know, yes. the research, the comparing of self, the seeking community. Um, I think that's a, a part of the as a part of the identity uh, development. Yes, um, again, I guess the again, I guess the the differentiator here is um, is it impacting functioning? Yes, I think is it impacting functioning and like and is is it does it feel excessive to the person? Does it feel out of the person's control? Because I completely agree. You know that is such a normal thing to do, right? You know, if you're exploring your sexual identity or your gender identity, like finding more information out about it. I cannot tell you how many folks in my life, especially when we were teenagers, you know, the am I gay quizzes online. I mean, am I trans quizzes? Those are, those can be valuable resources. Absolutely. Yeah. But the, the excessive sort of out of control nature, like I can't stop until I find an answer to this. God. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, can you tell us a little bit about pure O OCD? Um, what that involves, what life might look like for somebody with pure O OCD? Yes. So pure O, I think, is kind of a misnomer because it, I think people think, oh, I just have obsessions. I don't have compulsions. What happens though is the person has obsessions but they may engage in compulsions that no one else can see but them. And they may not even know that they're doing compulsions because, you know, in, in media and pop culture, compulsions are washing your hands. Mm -hmm. You know, you and I know that they're, it's so much more complex than that. So um, someone with Puro might have a lot of obsessions, but might do a lot of mental compulsions. Um, so things that go on in their own head that no one would have any idea are going on. So like mental avoidance, like I'm just not going to think about that. Um, mental checking, sort of the example I gave before, like reviewing things in their mind until it feels right. Um, Self-reassurance, 
internal superstitious behaviors, praying. So there's definitely a C in the pure O, you know, Mm -hmm. but it's just less evident to other people and people who suffer with, you know, less evident compulsions, external compulsions might not even know that they're doing compulsions. Sounds kind of similar to like stimming. Like what people, people, things, you know, stimming people can see and stimming people can't see, for example. Yes. Yeah. Some like internalized stimming, soothing versus what we may traditionally see as, you know, rocking behavior or, mm-hmm. or um, um, you know, hand manipulation, things like that. Yes. Yes. And, and a way to regulate and comfort. Right. Um, but in OCD, it, it helps short term and not long term, as opposed to the utility and autism spectrum disorders and things like that. Right. That's a good parallel. I like that. Yeah. Well, I I saw a presentation somewhere that basically said that autism is kind of like a combination or, yeah, like a combination of OCD, ADHD. Gosh, there is another one. I can't remember now. Um, But yeah, I mean, it, it also, they also said in that, um, presentation that um, ADHD is on the autism spectrum, um, which I, I do believe. And there's uh, been some articles come out over the last several years that um, talk about that as well. That's really, really interesting. Um, that's not something I knew about. I would love to get some more information on that from you. Yeah, um, I think I have some articles I can send. That would be great. Do, do you remember what they said about um, the OCD presentation? Like, so OCD, ADHD, and then maybe some other um, diagnostic category sort of being maybe like a trifecta that underscores right. autism. Do you remember right. about the OCD part? Did it have to do with the stimming piece that you mentioned before? I don't remember. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember the specifics. Uh, let me see if I can find something related to that. That would be fabulous because I haven't heard that conceptualization before, probably because I'm not in the, the um, autism spectrum world too much, but um, that sounds fascinating. Yeah. Um, so for OCD, mm-hmm. I'm sure there's more than one treatment option. We know that exposure and response prevention is a viable treatment option for OCD. What other options are there? So from my understanding of the scientific literature, exposure and response prevention and some cognitive therapies are the gold standard evidence base. Um, I know that there is some research about EMDR and OCD, but it's definitely not as well established as exposure and response prevention um, and cognitive cognitive behavioral therapy and cognitive therapies. Um, but I mean, I... I am I'm very hopeful that, you know, the field continues to find um, creative ways to treat this. And there's also some evidence that acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT is a helpful adjunct to exposure and response prevention because so much of OCD, they used to call it the doubting disease, you know, the uncertainty disease. And um, ACT is really helpful in um, in sort of, accepting and tolerating uncertainty and distress. So I, I like to use it a lot in, in ERP as well. But those those are the, the gold standard 
scientifically validated treatments. So what exactly is exposure and prevention? Uh, and exposure and response prevention. Um, tell us what that looks like for somebody. Yes. So in a nutshell, um, and I, I, I am excited to demystify this a little bit for folks. Um, so basically, it's, it's a type of cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and essentially, what we do is the, the sufferer of OCD um, creates a list of situations, thoughts, images that, that are really distressing to them that they tend to avoid and shut down in response to. And what ERP helps them do is slowly but surely expose themselves to those situations and thoughts, drum up a little bit of anxiety. That anxiety will make them want to do compulsions. The response prevention piece is a skill that we build to help clients not perform the compulsions, but to rather have them sit with the distress and have, have their brains learn, you can tolerate distress and uncertainty without responding to it in compulsions. You're more in control here than your OCD is and help them not be as beholden to compulsions by really increasing their confidence and their own self-efficacy. Um, I think for a lot of people, they're like, are you absolutely out of your mind? You sadist freak. You're going to make me do like <laughs> these horrible things. Like if people have contamination, they're like, you're going to make me touch dirt. I'm going to take away your license. Um, and, you know, I say to them, I hear you. I totally hear you. Um, but, you know, if we think of OCD as a bully, and this is, this is what I say to patients all the time. So bully comes to your locker at school, demands your lunch money. If you give your bully the lunch money, uh, the lunch money, sorry, that was, that was a end of the day. <laughs> if you give your bully your lunch money, i.e. if you do a compulsion or you run away from your bully, i.e. another compulsion of avoidance, you'll get some relief in the short term for sure. Bully will go away. It got what it wanted, either to freak you out or get your 125 for a slice of pizza. Um, but what's going to happen the next day? They're going to come back for more lunch money or to freak you out more because they're, you know, they get off on that. If you take the stance of noticing the bully, acknowledging their presence, like, hey, hey, buddy, all right, I see that you're here. I'm, I'm just going to keep unloading my stuff in my locker and not really give you what you want. It might be really painful. They might torture you. And those are the obsessions. That's the bully, right? They might be calling you names. They might be pushing you. They might be really trying to get you to give them what they want. But if you repeatedly don't give in to its demands, it's going to go away because you're not fueling it. So if we consistently practice not responding to scary thoughts with compulsions, the urge to do the compulsions are going to decrease. And generally, you, you, you experience less, um, less intense obsessions because they're not being fed. So, yeah, that's usually how I like to explain it to people. And it is, it is, it is a really difficult treatment, but oh my gosh, can it work? How does it work? Like what, when somebody comes in, like what, you know, what gets you started? What does the process look like? Yes. Let's demystify it. Okay. So this varies a lot. Is it okay if I just speak from how I do it? Yeah. Okay. I feel like I do it, like, I feel like I've been trained in a very evidence-based way to do it. And I think most people at my practice do it a pretty similar way. So I hope that I'm speaking for most of the ERP therapists out there. Um, I first want to assess them 
and, you know, see what's going on. What are their obsessions? What are their compulsions? I usually um, give them an assessment measure called the Yale Brown Obsessive Compulsive Scale or the Y box. Kind of sounds like a little chicken. Um, so we get a sense of, all right, what's going on in your brain? What are you doing? Um, and then, like I mentioned before, we work super collaboratively on something called an exposure menu or an exposure hierarchy. And there are tons of interesting examples of these online, but it's very personalized, very, very personalized because our brains are, are really, you know, are really unique. Um, so that's basically a list of, um, of, of images, objects, concepts, situations that someone is fearing and they respond to compulsions when faced with. So, you know, if someone, um, I don't know, contamination is the thing that comes to mind, but if someone is really afraid of, you know, contaminants of some kind and they're, you know, not going outside at all, or they're washing their hands 15 times a day for, you know, a minute each, we try to say, okay, what, what would it, is it important for you to go outside? And they'll go, yeah, I miss going in my gazebo and reading a book. Oh my God, I miss that. We go, okay, let's, how can we get you closer to that point? Maybe you can just stand right outside your door for a few minutes and see if you can tolerate that. Um, maybe we can, you know, get you a little further out sitting on a chair outside that you're a little afraid of, but might be willing. And so sort of step-by-step step, getting people to re-engage with their lives because OCD take it, it makes your world so small. So anything that we can do to get people doing things that they used to do and without doing the associated compulsion. So um, increasing this safety learning and diminishing this fear learning. So yeah, we do exposures, heightens their anxiety, help them not respond to it with compulsions, and ultimately like have people live a values-based life. OCD strips away a values-based life. And so we talk about what the heck do you want to be doing? Let's do exposures that are going to get you closer to that, whether that be dating, going to a grocery store, um, traveling, um, and having dinner with your family, you know, things like that. What is the learning not to respond to uh, compulsions look like generally? I imagine it's different for different people, but um, are there any commonalities you've noticed across people's journeys in that part of their treatment? I mean, I, I, what, I, what I notice is that compulsions become such an automatic response um, and it takes a lot of time and repeated and intentionality to carve out uh, as well of a treaded path as your compulsions have treaded, have, have carved. Um, a, a way that we support people is I'll usually do an exposure with people first. So they'll do it with me and I'll coach them through it, you know? So if they have the urge to, to, um, make something even, we go, okay, let's see, let's see if you can sit with that for five more seconds. Um, if they have an urge to do some sort of mental compulsion, like mentally pray, um, or, or check something in their mind, I check in with them and go, Hey, all right, are you, how are compulsions going? And they'll go, I'm having the urge to do a mental compulsion. And I'll go, okay, what can you say to yourself to stay in this, to, 
to tolerate this distress for a little bit longer. Because what eventually happens is either anxiety goes down when we don't do the compulsions or anxiety can stay high and we learn that we can handle it without doing the compulsions, um, if that makes sense. So it's really hard because it's habitual and it's automatic. Um, but I think having people become very aware of what they're doing automatically, just like, you know, we do in any sort of cognitive therapy or mindfulness therapy helps them slow that process down and make a choice to not do the compulsion. So uh, a part of that then is increasing distress tolerance. Yes. Yes. hundred percent. That's the name of the game. OCD makes people think that they cannot tolerate distress. They cannot sit with it, have to get rid of it. Uh, Noah, yes. Yes. You're an ERP therapist now. <laughs> <laughs> so thinking about somebody who may be going through ERP, how can family and friends best support a loved one with OCD? This is a really, really great question, no matter how old you are, you know, if you're a teen, if you're an adult, whatever. Um, I love getting family involved because family or friends or partners can be such a big piece in someone's recovery. And also if people don't know about how OCD works, they may be doing things that are maintaining the OCD symptoms. So I like to provide people education about what OCD is, um, sending them a lot of resources, like what's going on generally and what's going on with your loved one. Um, I also like to talk about something called a family accommodation or accommodating behaviors. So these are behaviors that loved ones do with their, with their loved ones that are meant to help and decrease their loved one's distress. But in OCD treatment, we want to ramp up that distress and have people tolerate it and realize that they're, they're badass. Um, but when people, you know, when loved ones say, it's okay, it's okay, I'll totally clean the kitchen thoroughly, or it's okay, we don't have to leave the house at all, I'll bring things to you, you know, or um, you don't have to touch this, I'll touch this, or yes, I'll give in to all of your reassurances, you're totally okay, I'm not mad at you at all keeps OCD alive. So mm -hmm. enabling behaviors. Yes. And no, no one means to like, Oh my right. God, I find myself doing this in my own life sometimes with my loved ones saying, no, like it's completely okay. You're hundred percent going to get this apartment. This person totally likes you. That's not true. I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's human. It's human nature. Right. So we collaborate on ways to decrease that accommodation. So I'll usually say to my patient and their partner, all right, patient X gets three reassurances from you each day. Make some cards. Do not give in to them if they ask you for more than three. Or, you know, like you cannot buy your partner any more gloves. You can't because we got to get them to stop using gloves. Partner, is that okay? And it's collaborative. I don't instruct people to do things yeah. with being <laughs> a discussion. But yeah, and also just being kind and sympathetic and also recognizing that it can be, it can be, it's extremely tough for the sufferer and also can be challenging for the partner. So just being a conduit between them to optimize patient care. Mm -hmm. Sounds like setting boundaries is important. It is. It's also really hard it's when hard. Yeah. to do that, right? So yeah, but setting boundaries that, that are ultimately going to help 
going to help your loved one. And we're, we're all about long-term gains here because short-term mm-hmm. it's hard, but long-term it's, it, it really pays off. What, what do you think might deter somebody from doing ERP? I think, I think something that might deter someone from doing ERP is a misconception that your therapist is just going to force you to do all these scary things. Um, and I want to highlight that doing scary things is a part of the treatment, but like your therapist should be your GPS and you should be in the driver's seat, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so no one will ever, I mean, if someone's doing ERP correctly, no one's ever telling someone or commanding someone to do something, you know, you're going to be coming up with things that are really important for you to branch out and do, and you're going to have the support of your therapist in doing that. Um, I think another thing is people think that, you know, these like evidence-based treatments or exposure treatments are like sterile and like session one must do X, Y, or Z, session two, blah, blah, um, <laughs> That's, that's actually what I sound like when I'm in treatment. <laughs> Just absurd. Um, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get people flocking to me after this with that. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it's not like that. It, it can be super fluid and, um, and, and flexible. And um, I don't know. I, I, I don't feel like it's particularly rigid at all. So I think those two things might... Um, those misconceptions may deter people from coming in for this really effective, but, but challenging treatment. You know, one thing uh, that occurred to me earlier that I meant to ask about earlier, but forgot is um, you were talking about um, like somebody obsessing that maybe a partner is upset with them. And then that person seeking reassurance from the partner. Mm -hmm. Um, How does one differentiate that between codependency and trauma? Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> That's a really good question. I had the urge to go, next question. That's <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, codependency is codependency is, is something that I know can be, that can be born from trauma. And Mm -hmm. I think it's hard to say, I think there are like different definitions of these. I think perhaps codependency might look or OCD might look like codependency or may look like, um, you know, uh, like a codependency trauma informed response. Um, in, in, in codependency, in, in your experience, like maybe codependency that is informed by relational trauma, do you feel like there is that excessive reassurance seeking in that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So it, it seems like you're kind of asking, like, how, like, how do you distinguish between codependency and uh, reassurance compulsions? Right. That might be, t- that, that might be tough to distinguish. Um, but I, even if we don't distinguish them, potentially, would would you say that maybe um, like in a like do you think there could be a similar approach in helping people decrease that dependency on other people and increase dependency in their own self reliance and sitting with something that may 
um, may not be certain, if that makes sense. Like, do you think there could be a similar approach? I, a part of me feels like, like that would be, I don't know, a part of me feels like something like ERP could help Mm-hmm. at least in the short term. Yeah. Um, but long term, you'd want to kind of unpack that trauma, you know? And, um, yeah. So I don't know, maybe, maybe there's just, maybe more than one approach is indicated in those situations. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree with you. Like if there's underlying trauma that's impacting the relationship. Yeah. Like a hundred percent. That makes sense. Um, and you know, I, I think in both trauma and OCD, you know, like there's an underlying like fear of sitting with Mm -hmm. uncertainty. And so, yeah, like I could see how limiting reassurance could be helpful in, and I think like limiting reassurance also isn't the whole picture in OCD treatment, but in trauma treatment, right. Like, doing more processing and repairing those interpersonal styles. Um, but I think there are also like other contextual factors and that, that, and a lot of people have OCD and trauma history. So it's difficult to disable. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like sometimes someone's OCD can be um, precipitated by a traumatic Mm -hmm. event in some way. So I guess I'll half answer it and half next question it. Cause it's. Okay. (laughs) Sounds good. (laughs) <laughs> if you ever come across anything um, about the way those might interact, I, I'd love it if you'd send it to me. Yes, let me, let me, I'll, I'll, uh, I turn my phone off, but let me make a note somewhere on my desk for that. Perfect. It's going to be on my hand, actually. <laughs> middle school, middle school style. Okay, Perfect. How long do people typically how long do people typically wait before getting to a um, before getting to ERP like you know I'm sure that ranges but like I'm wondering if you see a lot of people wait you know five years after diagnosis ten years or you know if it's a or if people seek it right after diagnosis. I'm just curious about that. Mm-hmm. I can't give you a definitive answer on that, but I can say anecdotally, people spend years in therapy being misdiagnosed and getting mm-hmm. treatment. And then when they finally get that OCD diagnosis, they're like, oh my gosh, they got like this, yes, this maps on. And so I, I generally find that once people have an inkling that that's going on, they seek treatment relatively quickly. I think the bigger problem is that, you know, in graduate school, we don't, you know, we get a lot of generalized training and we hope that we get all of our diagnostics covered. But sometimes when it's really nuanced, um, like I've had people who have like uh, self-harm related OCD, so they don't actually want to harm themselves, but they have intrusive thoughts and they've been, you know, referred to a lot of different, um, you know, programs and modalities that 
that deal with NSSI and suicidal ideation, but it's not that it's like, it's like a suicidal obsessive thought. So they're, you know, being treated for just because of, you know, lack of understanding or a blind spot or something for something that they're not necessarily organically experiencing. So Mm -hmm. I would say once people know they're, they're pretty invested in getting treatment, at least in my experience. Cool. Okay. Um, Anything else about ERP that you think would be good for people to know? I would say that it can be immensely helpful. And in the spirit of ERP, I, I recommend that people feel the fear and, and try it anyway, if they think it might be helpful for their OCD. I like that. Mm-hmm. So shifting gears to you as a practitioner, um, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? That's a really great question. Um, I've been really lucky that the vast majority of my training was in the San Francisco Bay Area, where there are a lot of folks um, who are members of the LGBTQIA plus community, BIPOC, undocumented. Um, and so I've, I've worked in a lot of systems where I have seen a lot of patients who have either one or multiple intersecting identities. Um, it's been particularly interesting. I have a fair amount of training in the veterans affairs system. Um, and since there have been, you know, laws that are, you know, loosening restrictions on, um, uh, legal oppression, I mean, and that's been variable, but legal oppression of, um, gender and sexual minorities. There have been a lot of opportunities, um, to work with trans non-binary queer veterans as well. Um, so, and, and also doing my internship in, in Houston, it's the fourth most diverse city in the country. So, a a fair amount of experience um, and just aiming to be a strong ally to these communities and striving to understand their experiences, recognizing my own biases and just learning about how, how life is because it's, it's, there's one thing to feel othered period. And there's another thing to feel othered in a country where there is rampant systemic oppression and how all of that intersects in mental health is just so salient. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I, I, I really, really enjoy getting to understand and learn about um, folks experiences um, being who they are in these contexts and how that impacts their minds and their functioning. Um, it's, it's inspiring, it's heartbreaking. Um, and I, I just, I feel it's a, it's a, it's a big privilege to work with people who, who are unlike myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In any, in what, any. Yeah, absolutely. What could a new client expect from an initial session with you? Do you have like a, an assessment that you do or like, uh, you know, what does it look like? Um, I usually like uh, sessions one to two, one to three, I do like a pretty thorough psychodiagnostic assessment. I want to know like what, what's your background, trauma, risk, what are you dealing with? 
what aspects of your cultural identity are important to you that you bring to treatment. Um, get get some diagnostic clarification. And I tell people not to you know label you, but to figure out what treatment would be best. You know, treatment for specific phobia is going to look different than depression or OCD or things like that. Um, and then after that, um, we go into treatment mode. But yeah, like one to three sessions of a psychodiagnostic and a psychosocial assessment. Cool. How would you say your clients would describe or experience you? Ooh, I should have asked them. <laughs> 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 you get this question for, you know, interviews for in graduate school. Like, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? How would people describe you? And I'm like, oh God, I don't know. Um, That's a hard question. It is. Um, I can tell you how I hope they describe me. <laughs> um, I hope that they would describe me as warm, um, funny, but also someone who will challenge them um, mm-hmm. to aid in their growth and not just be, you know, like a yes lady, but to, to hold them and also push them. Um, wherever they're willing to be pushed. It seems like you have to do that in ERP. You really do. And I think, I think, you know, humor, not, not in a, you know, an avoidant way can, can go a long way because this stuff's scary. And sometimes you have to just be like, you have to grin and grin and bear it and have a lot of trust there. Yeah. Are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? Absolutely to both. Yes. That's been a, uh, a uh, quite the contentious question on this show. <laughs> yeah. Why do you, really, why do you think that is? I don't know. I mean, I think, and I can see both schools of thought, you know, I think that we should never do anything that detracts um, focus from the client, obviously not make it about ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think that there are moments that are sometimes like touching or like the moment somebody finally gets it, um, you know, or, you know, I, I don't know. There's, there's so many, so many different situations that could happen. And, um, you know, I think that we're only human and that we are just human. <laughs> yeah. You know? um, so I, I don't know. I I feel like if if you're going to cry with your clients as a therapist, then it needs to be done responsibly. So I'm I'm taking both sides there and kind of mm-hmm. merging it at the center because yeah. I I don't believe we should be like wildly emotional with our clients like that's inappropriate you know yes Um, so i think it's just about as with everything in life um finding an appropriate balance there yeah absolutely for sure i think you know folks who do trauma therapy you know that that feels so salient too you know it's it's so important to both hold space and and you know, be, be a rock for people, but also, you know, um, when appropriate express that shared humanity. Um, but yeah, I would say with, with my, with my clients, tears come up with those, with those big moments, you know, Mm -hmm. 
I did a thing. And, mm-hmm. and I'll say to them, like, I feel tears welling up in my eyes. This is beautiful. Like, this is just right. a beautiful moment that we're sharing here. Um, so, yeah, agreed with you. There are, there are uh, appropriate and inappropriate times, for sure. Yeah. Um, so, speaking of holding space, how would you define holding space for someone? Hmm. Hmm. That's a hard one. Um, probably, probably just sitting with whatever someone is bringing in the moment and, you know, not necessarily inserting what you feel like they need or whatever automatic response that you're having, but just sitting with it without bringing in any biases or urge to change or unshift comfortable, uncomfortable emotions with someone. And would you be engaging in a compulsion? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I might be engaging in response prevention because if someone is, you know, distressed or, you know, whatever, I might have the urge to go, oh my gosh, no, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. that's okay. But sometimes <laughs> space for someone is, is right. sitting with that yourself, being like, right. okay, that's not what this person is needing right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a really good question. <laughs> Um, what is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? I feel like I have to next question this because I've received such like such good advice. That I don't think I can pinpoint the the best. It would be unfair. Is there a certain like event you can recall? that you learned a lot from a supervisor in like specific? Mm. I think there have been lots of specific instances where I felt imposter syndrome a mm. lot. Mm-hmm. Even, even after receiving specialized training, I think there have been, and I know that's kind of a general thing, but there have been many instances where you know, sometimes you just feel like, oh, maybe I don't know what I'm doing or maybe X, Y, or Z and a lot of that uncertainty and doubt. And I think in response to those sentiments, valuable advice that I've received from my supervisors is number one, normalizing that. And number two, reminding myself, okay, like hopefully you know more about ERP than the person you're treating. Fingers crossed. So (laughs) take that as a solace and just I, I think normalizing that and also recognizing that, you know, them relaying to me that, you know, you're trying to do your best, whether you feel a hundred percent competent in every moment. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's some solid general advice I've received. Yeah, imposter syndrome is real. Very real. When does it end, Noah? Tell me. <laughs> you, you, I mean, I think it, it functions, though, as a part of what keeps us engaged in continuing to learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it, like that, that aspect of anxiety keeps one humble and striving, you know, because right. you never feel like you're you're fully baked, which yeah, it seems like is a good thing. Yeah. Hey, 
Well, I think I, you're not my supervisor, but I think I can file that away. So I'm pretty sorry. <laughs> cool. Um, what have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice? I have learned that sitting with uncertainty and not doing anything about it works. And I have learned to not be a hypocrite and apply that to my own life. And oh my gosh, it's so hard. It's so hard. So hard. I, it's so hard. I had, um, I had like a medical biopsy done when I was uh, in postdoc and, you know, see, I see tons of people with health anxiety or health related OCD where like the fear is, do I have cancer? Do I have cancer? Do I have cancer? Uh I was like, Oh my gosh, what do I do? And I was like, I actually know what to do. And it's really hard to sit with, you know, thankfully everything was fine, but just a self disclosure to, to sort of highlight the fact that I, I utilize and benefit from the same skills that I'm disseminating to, to my clients. And oh my gosh, our brains are so powerful, uh, whether, and, and powerful in ways that are not helpful for us, but can also be very powerful in ways that are really helpful to us. And we can harness that, uh, that for, for good. Um, and I think I just learned that humans are so resilient. I just feel like I continue to learn that, you know, people are, people have been through so much trauma and strife and oppression and they're still here and they're still doing the work. And I'm just, I'm, I'm amazed at all of my clients, especially during COVID. Like I'm sure you've, you know, heard about anxiety and OCD becoming a lot more severe in a lot of people. Oh yeah. And duh. Um, but I've just been really astounded at people's willingness to, work through that um and come out on the other side so people are amazing they are and it's such an honor to get to work with them too it really is what do you do to take care of yourself take a lot of weekend naps um snuggle with my animals cook things that are really easy to cook because i have poor attention to detail while cooking And, you know, I know the podcast folks can't see the video, but giving myself really bad manicures (laughs) is something to, sometimes my, my partner, I'll give myself, you know, three manicures in a week and he'll be like, are you okay? Are you, are you doing okay? (laughs) Like everything's fine because the nail polish is, you know, coming off of my hands. So (laughs) it's something. Uh (laughs) how would you define happiness oh that's that's hard i'm gonna next question that one that's tough okay what is the most embarrassing moment you have had as a clinician i'm also gonna plead the fifth and i'm gonna i'm just gonna go on (laughs) all right um are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy yes i have been in therapy and i i've found it really rewarding and helpful and was a really big piece of why I became a psychologist. So yeah, I highly recommend and hope that if clinicians continue to talk about their therapeutic experiences, we can continue to destigmatize this um, 
I think that would be really, really nice. So yeah, I'm very pro-therapy, giving it and getting it. Oh yeah, same here. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that you think would be good for a potential client or other therapist to know about you and or uh, exposure and response prevention? Um, I would love for both potential clients and for therapists or medical providers in the area, um, to know that I'm always happy to consult, um, if OCD or any sort of anxiety disorder, generalized anxiety, specific phobia, panic, um, is something that they want to talk about. I'm also, I, I very much value collaborative wraparound care. Mm -hmm. So, um, I am always happy to speak to my clients, psychiatrists, nutritionists, family members, former therapists with, you know, proper legal release of information, of course, to, to make sure that they feel well held, taken care of, and that everyone is on the same team. So that would be, those would be the big pieces that I'd like to convey to, to folks out there. Cool. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, Amanda. Thank you, Noah. I really appreciate you having me, and I, I hope that I hope that this was helpful. Absolutely, I think a lot of people are going to benefit from hearing this. Oh well, that's really sweet of you to say. Thank you. I appreciate that. Just just the fact that you you have this platform for people to um, get education and resources. Um, it's it's really really valuable and um, accessible. So thank you. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Stay tuned for our episode next week on Radically Open Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, or RODBT. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T dot com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Podcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.